Um, Hebrews chapter 2, and as always, I invite you, if you'd like to, to turn in your Bibles there. However, this is one of those Sundays where I would actually advise you uh, to follow along with me in your bulletins because uh, we're going to be in a lot of passages that I have placed throughout your bulletin, particularly on pages uh, 9 and 10 of your bulletin. One of the, frankly, one of the purposes that I have for us today is to put before us the clarity that the Word of God brings to our topic uh, for today. So, uh, we this morning come to Sermon 6 of 9. Uh, sermons in our summer series. The summer series is Flesh and Bones, a Biblical Theology of the Body. In the first three sermons, we considered creation, how we have been created by God as embodied image bearers of God. And very simply, we saw that in the first case that we're created very good Then we looked at the question that is brought up in Psalm 8, the question being, what is man? We looked at how we were created by God, how we were formed, constituted by God. And in the sermon after that, we asked the question, what's a body to do? What's the purpose of our being created by God as material beings? What are we supposed to do with these bodies? Now, I found those sermons to be very joyful and very encouraging to think about, but you really can't just talk about creation when you're talking about the body because the reality is we live in a fallen world. It's not a perfect world. And as we saw for the two subsequent weeks, the body has been impacted by the fall of mankind into sin in dramatic and in devastating ways. And so the last two weeks have frankly been, uh, I, I know for me, for you probably as well, listening to them darker much darker than the, the, the first three weeks of this series were. Two weeks ago, we talked about the impact of sin on the body, and we saw that sin comes in and immediately introduces into the body itself the idea of shame, uh, the idea of pain in all the parts of our lives and in some of the most very delightful parts of our lives and some of the most common experiences of our lives from childbirth um, to our work. We saw that work isn't just a nice thing to do anymore. It's full of toil and it's full of sweat. And then finally, we saw that death comes to the body through uh, the sin that has come into the world with the final statement in uh, the curses in Genesis chapter 3, dust to dust. We were made dust and we will return to dust. We will be undone, we who were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And then last week, what we did is we saw the idea that not only does sin impact us in that way in this life and frankly for all eternity were we to remain in that state, but sin indwells us as well. It takes up residence inside of us. And so sin not only impacts on us, but it gets into us and it works through us as well. And so we saw then the use of terms particularly, not in any way exclusively, but particularly in Romans where we were uh, last week, we saw the terms like uh, this body of death, this body of sin, or the sinful flesh, or the sin which dwells in my members. And so, frankly, the last two weeks have been, to use Paul's word, wretched. 
wretched, just two wretched weeks of dwelling in sin and thinking about sin uh, on our bodies and thinking about sin in and through our bodies as well. But there is, as we read in Romans 7, there is one who can deliver us from this body of death, Jesus Christ our Lord, and it is to him that we now turn as we consider in this sermon and in the next sermon the redemption of our bodies that takes place through Jesus Christ himself. Now, uh, as I said, I'm going to read for us now from Hebrews chapter 2 as we begin today. I suppose you could say my focus, just in terms of what we'll look at a little bit, is in the section from 14 through 17. But I wanted to begin it a little bit earlier than that, particularly so that you could catch the reflection that the writer is giving on Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8 was a pretty significant psalm for us, uh, where you get the question, what is man? Uh, And so I wanted to pick it up from there so that we could see how the flow of his thinking goes and his writing goes as this truth is presented to us. You will note then that as this passage is structured, uh, there's a lot of use of he and him. It begins by the idea of mankind as a whole. And then it moves into the man, the man Jesus Christ, and shows us how the work of the man Jesus Christ then extends back out to humanity as a whole. So you'll see that flow as I read through this. This is the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God. Give your attention to it, beginning at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, namely Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and just uh, note here, this saying is from Psalm 22. It's where we opened our worship service today. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The I there is Jesus. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus said, this is my body. And that's our title for today. Great God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Spirit of God, thank you for ministering Christ to us. We pray that today we would see him. Thank you, Jesus, for being in this world, for becoming us, that we might be united to you. In your name we pray. Amen. When the Apostle Paul exclaims, as we saw him do and as we quoted uh, in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is capturing the desperation, the inescapability of the human condition of death because of sin. Our self or efforts at self-deliverance will not save us. They will not deliver us from death. We can praise God and be thankful for all of you who are here, who are doctors and who are nurses, uh, who are pharmacists and who are physical therapists, and all of you who work in Uh, the, the drug industry. We can be thankful for all of those things, but ultimately you will not be able to deliver us from the body of death. Uh, you should work out, at least be active. You should eat well and take care of yourself. But finally, it will not deliver you from the body of death. And we can think of more spiritual things, the law of God given to us. The law of God cannot deliver us from the body of death because of the law of sin that is operative in us that takes the law of God, corrupts it in our attempts at it, and so the law itself, a good thing, ends up being that by which we are condemned. The law of God can't deliver us from the body of death. The prophets that were sent by God can't deliver us from this body of death. They can warn us. They do warn us. And sometimes, sometimes for a little while, sometimes for a longer amount of time, the people of God heed the warnings of the prophets, but ultimately the prophets themselves can't deliver us from this body of death. And the thousands upon thousands of animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, all of the offerings that were made cannot deliver us from this body of death. The redemption of our body, of our flesh, of our members, of our spirit, soul, of our very selves requires someone who is capable, and now I'm reflecting the truths that are found in this Hebrews 2 passage, someone who is capable of defeating Satan sin, and death. Those three have to be defeated. Humanity, as we know and as we've seen, was created for glory and honor, forsook it for independence, 
and thus shame and dishonor. And the question becomes, in the language of this passage, verse 10 in particular, how do you bring many sons to glory given the fact that we have rebelled against the glory and honor with which we were created and sought our own way in shame and dishonor? How, how do you bring them back? How do you rescue us? How do you return us? How do you redeem us? How do you deliver us out of this body of death? And the answer is given to us in the text that is before us. Let me address particularly in verses 14 and 17 what is written there. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, since we're that stuff, since that's the way we're made, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17, same idea begins it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The one who can deliver us from the body of death has to be one who has the power to defeat Satan. And that's exactly what is described for us there in verse 14. To destroy the one who had the power of death, that is Satan himself, Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to destroy that one, in order to take the keys out of his hand and to rend that back to himself. He took on flesh and blood. He did it to defeat sin. That's what's in verse 17. Verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Something had to take care of sins. It had to be taken care of by Jesus himself in his body and soul, as we read, absorbing the wrath of God against sin upon himself to make propitiation for sins. And finally, it had to be somebody who could defeat death. Somebody who could take away the terror of death that had enslaved all of humanity up to that point. The redemption of our bodies, of ourselves, foreshadowed in the Old Testament is accomplished in the one and only Son, as the writer says, namely Jesus. Jesus embodied and Jesus enfleshed. And so today, here's what I want to look at. His body in birth, his body in life, and his body in death. Next week, we'll look at his body in the resurrection and his body in heaven, having ascended and seated at the right hand of his Father. In so doing, what we're going to see is the scriptural witness to the flesh and bones solidity of Jesus. Just the solidity of our Lord and Savior. And as we consider his solidity, in addition to that, we are then considering his solidarity with us. The fact that he is one of us. So his solidity and his solidarity, we begin them with his body in birth, which we commonly and wonderfully and already in this service have referred to as the incarnation, his infleshing. From the very beginning, uh, the Old Testament, while teaching us many truths about 
uh, salvation, about deliverance, about redemption. The, the, there are two lessons that are taught to us in particular about this deliverance that we seek and that we need. Lesson number one is this. Only God can do it. God is the only one who can deliver us out of the condition in which we find ourselves. And I'm not even going to quote a bunch of scriptures on this. Salvation is of the Lord, right? That's the lesson that comes through loud and clear from the Old Testament. Only God can deliver us. Lesson number two that comes from the Old Testament is that this salvation of man must be by man and through man. So lesson number one is that salvation can only come by the Lord, and lesson number two is that salvation has to come by a man. And so the, the Old Testament holds this kind of mystery, and it kind of looks at this and, and teaches us to, to think about it and to expect what is to come. Now, there are literally hundreds or thousands of passages in the Old Testament that we could look at to illustrate this, but I just want to reference three of them for us this morning to make sure that we're absolutely clear on this. And the first is the one that you would expect in Genesis 3 itself when the Lord is cursing the serpent and he says that through the woman, through the seed of the woman, one is going to come. Now, that's to say through the offspring of a woman, a, a, a person comes through the woman. Through the seed of the woman, one is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. And so from the very beginning, we are looking for a person. We are looking for someone who comes from the line of humanity to be the one who will crush the head of Satan. Isaiah 7, 14 is on the front of your bulletins. I told you you were going to get Christmas this week, uh, last week. And sure enough, in the readings, here we go. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And here we start to see, or we, we see the, the coming together of these two ideas. On the one hand, this one who is going to be born into the world will be born through a woman who has conceived, speaking of the humanity. And on the other hand, she's a virgin. And so this will be miraculous, and the name of this one shall be called Emmanuel. And then, of course, in the Isaiah passage, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, the one we know so well from the Messiah, we see this same idea given to us again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and one of the names of this child, of this son, of this human, is in fact Mighty God. Mighty God. These are flesh and bones prophecies. They are prophetic words only fulfilled by embodiment. And they taught the people of the Old Testament as they remind us to expect the Messiah, to expect Christmas when by the power of the Holy Spirit to show the godness a woman, a virgin, conceives and gives birth to the God-man, to Emmanuel, to God in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. On the front of your bulletin, 
You'll find a verse that is well known to us. It is the last verse we typically read in our lessons and carol service uh, on Christmas Eve. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This eternal Word of God, the one who was God, the one who was with God in the beginning, took on flesh and has dwelt with us. Now, to continue to see how this idea is unpacked in Scripture, I could I could take us through the birth narratives themselves, but I'd like to look uh, from a slightly different angle to see the significance of Jesus having flesh. So turn with me in your bulletins uh, to page 10. Sorry, your bulletins are going to be, I told you, really handy today. Listen to the way John puts this. First of all, these are the last two verses that are there on page 10 of your bulletin. In 1 John chapter 4, John says this, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You have to confess the infleshing of the eternal Word of God. 2 John makes the same point in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such of one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John will not abide any kind of spiritualizing of Jesus. He will not abide any kind of dehumanizing of Jesus, any kind of dematerializing or disembodying Jesus. John doesn't say that this Jesus seemed to have flesh or he appeared in the form of a man, but he really wasn't a man. Instead, he was a man in the flesh. And John is saying, you're doomed. It's an antichrist view if you take any other position other than to say that this man, this Jesus, is in the flesh and is man himself. Colossians 2, 9, now you've got to flip over to page 9 of your bulletins. The humanity having been confirmed, Colossians 2, 9 says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, not a little bit, of deity. It's not that Jesus was a man who was godlike or godly. Instead, all the fullness, all the godness that is God dwelt in him. He is the God man. The writer of Hebrews, right below uh, that one in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, says it this way, But in these last days he has spoken to us, that is, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's exactly God, and he is exactly man. He is flesh and bones and God, and so he is the perfect image of God. Now go to the top of page 9. 
these verses are obviously not put in the air in the order that I'm referring to them, but in the order that they came in Scripture. So if you go to the top of page 9 now, these three verses that I'm going to read for us are all taken in their own context, but I think you'll get the point of each one. In their case, that is in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Philippians 2, 7, but emptied himself, Jesus, uh, the, the word, emptying himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Colossians 1.15, a verse that we looked at from the very beginning of this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But he, Jesus, is not only an embodied image bearer in his constitution. In other words, it's not just that Jesus was made the God-man, and that's all that needed to take place. You just needed to make someone who was God and man. He's not only the God-man, the image bearer in his constitution, but he is also that, the image bearer in his execution, and I don't mean here his execution, his death, but in doing what he does, doing all of the things that his father gave him to do, gave us to do. And this takes us back to the, what we noted in creation itself, that image-bearing for us wasn't simply a status that we had, that image-bearing for us was in fact a mission that had been given to us. It was a status, uh, but it was also a mission by which we glorified and honored God. And so the same for, is true for Jesus as, where, as well. And this is where we come to his body and life. So we see his body in birth, now his body in life. And we asked earlier, what's a body to do? And now we can say, all right, well, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do with his body in this world? And the answer, as we begin to answer that question, is first of all, wonderful in its simplicity of an answer. He did all the normal things that a living person who has uh, flesh and bones or flesh and blood, however you'd like to say it, does with his body. He grew in his body. He lived with people. He ate and he drank and he got tired and he got thirsty and he got hungry and he spent time with his friends and he wept and he slept and he did all of those things with his body, normal things that you do with a body. Again, John uh, 4 stresses the significance of what we're saying here. You don't want to just overlook it. John, in beginning 1 John, writes this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have heard with our ears, these members right here, which we have seen with our eyes, these members right here, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest. We've seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes we speak, and I even prayed this way at the beginning of the sermon today, we talk about 
uh, seeing Jesus. And I prayed that way. I said, Lord, help us to see you through the Word as we consider the Word today. We understand, though, we're talking there, if you will, about sight in the sense of the eyes of faith. Help us to see Jesus by the eyes of faith. That's not what John's talking about. That's not what John's talking about at all. John wants people to know that he's not just talking about he was with Jesus by faith, although Jesus was uh, spiritually all over the place. John is saying, no, no, no. Listen, we sat at the table with him. We were his companions. We walked along with him. We shared meals together. We ate together. We drank together. We touched him. And that's what he's trying to say to us. The Son of God was enfleshed and was made manifest before us. His body the body of Jesus was circumcised. That's what a Jewish boy does, or it has done to his body. And his body was baptized, which is odd when you think about it. I, I, there's, a, there's a point I want to make here with this. Remember when Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he's going to be baptized and John goes, wait, we have a, <laughs> we have a problem here. The problem is I should be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Uh, you should be baptizing me. And, and Jesus says to John, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. John, baptize me. I have to be made like my people in every way. I have to be made like my brethren in every way. I have to fulfill all righteousness. I have to do everything that the Father has given me to do. Image bearers are to fulfill all righteousness, all righteousness, which means doing what God has commanded and not doing what Satan tempts one to do. Not doing what Satan tempts one to do. Now, immediately after this baptism, immediately after this, right? Immediately after he has said, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, the Spirit of God takes the Son of God out into the wilderness, in the flesh, in the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the tempter comes to him at that point. And the temptations that the tempter brings are exactly the ones that you would expect. They're all bodily. Now, I'm not saying they're not soul as well, but they're all bodily. You hungry after 40 days? Turn this stone into bread. Eat this. Takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down from here. Listen to it. You will not surely die. You will not surely die. Or look at all the kingdoms of the earth. All the kingdoms of the earth you can have. You'll be like God. You'll be like God. All the kingdoms of the earth you can have. What do you have to do? Take that body of yours and bow down. Worship me. That's all you have to do. All of them, bodily temptations, to get that body to do what the first image bearer's body did. Eat. Eat it. And rebel against the one. But Jesus honored God with his body by refusing and then by glorifying and enjoying God as the embodied image bearer, his tongue 
spoke the truth of God. His feet took him where he needed to go. His feet took him to various places, various towns, wherein the kingdom of God was proclaimed, wherein there were people who had particular needs. His feet ultimately took him to Jerusalem because that was where he must go. And his hands did his work. His hands did his work. They touched, they blessed, they healed, they served, and they loved. In his body and in life, he perfectly obeyed. He perfectly obeyed God with his body, with his soul, with his mind, with his heart, without stain or without blemish. Our redemption, the redemption of our bodies required the perfect obedience of the God-man of the enfleshed image-bearer. Which brings us now to reflection on his body in death. So at the supper, Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is for you. To us, a son is given, and the Son gives his body for us. The embodiment of the eternal word of God had a very particular purpose. In his life of obedience, he gave what man owed, perfect obedience as the embodied image bearer. In his death, he paid what we had earned in our life of disobedience. Our body of death is redeemed by his body of death. Our flesh is redeemed when his flesh suffers and bleeds and is torn apart by whips. Our bodily shame, pain, toil, and death is finally removed, ultimately removed by his bodily shame, pain, toil with evil, suffering, death, and burial. His body is an offering. His body is a sacrifice. His body for our body. Hebrews 2, where we began, describes the purpose of Jesus being both the creator and the end of creation. It is his purpose, as we saw from the very beginning, to bring many sons to glory, to his glory, to the glory of the Trinity, to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. What he wants to do, what he's determined to do, is to bring many sons into fellowship with that glory. We were created for glory and honor in our apostasy. We forsook the crown, the glory, and the honor. And in order to regain this for man, Jesus becomes one of us, exactly like us, as we saw in that passage, that he might, in the words of Hebrews 2, help us. Don't let help be a little word for you. This is big help. This is big help that is needed for the children of Abraham 
And that's what Jesus does. To help us, to redeem us, he must succeed where the first Adam failed. He must pay what Adam then owed. He has to suffer and he has to die. Those are the final acts of his obedience by which the God-man is then crowned with glory and honor. When the Father sees the Son give up his body, give up his blood, suffer, that he might call the other one's brothers, the Father says, I crown you with glory and honor because you've done everything that I told you to do. He tasted death for everyone and so helps the offspring of Abraham. He does this as the high priest in solidarity with mankind by offering himself, his solid self. First Peter chapter 2, he bore our sins in his body. He took on flesh for that purpose, to take your sins on his body. I know, I've put a lot of passages before us. Bear with me, I've got two more for us. Turn again to the bottom of page 9. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? In other words, these, off, these, these offerings come year after year. That's what the law says. Do it year after year after year. Showing, ultimately speaking, that they're ineffective. They actually don't work. That's why you've got to keep coming back and doing them again. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, by the way, this is Psalm 40 being quoted here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you've prepared for me. I, actually, I wanted to call this entire series a body prepared. A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sinner offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, and now Jesus is taking this on his lips. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. In your eternal decree, Father, I have come to do exactly all of your words, to fulfill all of your will, to obey every command that you have given. When he said the above, 
You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does the will perfectly. He does away with the first, that repetitive, ongoing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, namely his perfect sacrifice, having obeyed the will of God. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's what happens here. The one who perfectly obeyed the Father in body and soul by offering that body, then there is this grand deliverance. Sometimes you hear it asked, maybe sometimes we wonder ourselves, can't God just forgive sin? It isn't the mercy of God enough. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is we need more than just the quality of mercy. We need mercy enfleshed. Enfleshed. So that God can be both just and the justifier of those who are being saved. His body and birth, his body and life, lived perfectly, his body and death becomes a perfect offering, and such an offering that no more offerings are needed. We're going to close today with one more passage, and unfortunately I misquoted it in your bulletin, so I just want you to listen. It's Colossians 1, and 22 is going to be the focus, but I put 22 and 23, but I wanted 21 in there. In any case, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we've already come to a couple of times. The context of what I'm going to read is a celebration of Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and then it goes into this great hymn about Christ, who is the one who is the image bearer, the image of the invisible God, who has all the fullness of God dwelling inside of him, who has made peace by the blood of his cross, and then here's the words I want you to listen to. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds with your body. That's an addition with your body. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wretched. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who said, this is my body, which is for you. And in that body, his body has been given for our body to deliver us from death, to which all of God's people say, Amen. Lord, thank you for a gift inexpressible and yet one which you've given us a member to be able to express, to be able to say thank you, to wonder at such grace and at such love. Thank you, holy Jesus, in your name. Amen. Stand with me.